And now, friends, it is time for our study of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 21. And this morning, we're just going to look at three verses, verses 12 through 14. So Exodus 21, 12 through 14. And while you're doing that, let me just catch you up and remind you of where we are in our study in Exodus. So we've covered probably what is the most familiar part of Exodus, which is the story of God's great deliverance of Israel out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses. Now, at this point in our story, the ten plagues are long since past. Israel is journeying through the wilderness. They've arrived at Mount Sinai, and God has spoken directly to Israel, not even through Moses, but directly to Israel from Sinai, and he's given them the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. So I think up to this point, everyone's pretty familiar with those things. But now we've entered into what is often referred to as the Covenant Code, and this term comes from Exodus 24-7, and many Bible scholars use that term to refer to this section of law codes. And I realize for many people, these law codes are confusing, they are boring. Uh, for some people, they're even are offensive and archaic. And so I think there's a tendency for many Christians even to skip over this portion of God's word. But as we're going to see this morning, I believe that that's something we don't want to do. While I want to acknowledge, I think we need teachers, we need guides to help us through certain material, particularly uh, the law codes in the Old Testament. And yet what I want to show you this morning is that what God is doing here is completely relevant for our world today. And so we're going to read this passage of scripture and we'll get into our study. Exodus 12, excuse me, 21, 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die." That's God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I just pray for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit to take place in our hearts and minds so that we can hear these words as the word of God, that you would remove any clouds of confusion or doubt or resistance from you and what you would want to say today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher here this morning, and I just pray that you would lead and guide me as the teacher and preacher of your word this morning, that I may speak those words which are good, pleasing, and sound in your eyes. We ask for this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. What is justice? For many people, the Old Testament and specifically the law codes of the Old Testament are irrelevant for today's world. And yet that question, what is justice, is every bit as relevant today as it was in the day of Moses. And so the questions our society is wrestling with today are foundational questions that human beings all throughout history have wrestled with. What is justice? Who gets to decide and why? 
These are questions in American culture right now that not only are we battling over these things, but it's beginning to break or burst at the seams in many different ways. We're seeing crime played out all over the map. I remember a case just a few years ago. I was particularly troubled by it. Again, we see so many headlines, it's hard to keep up. But this one bothered me just because it really highlighted the 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 flippancy with which people often treat human life and the way in which people value meaningless things or things that are of such little value over that which is ultimately of value. And I remember a few years back, you might remember this, there was a case in Houston where a young man murdered another young man over his pair of shoes. Apparently, the young man had a pair of very desirable Nike Air Jordans, and so this other man arranged to meet him and murdered the man to get his Nikes. And I remember hearing that, and I was just so bothered by the fact not only did somebody murder somebody, but it wasn't even something like, oh, he felt his life was threatened or you know, he something else, but a pair of shoes. And the thing that struck me was how a human life was valued less than a pair of shoes. And things like that are happening in our culture. And so where do we go? Where do we go to answer this question, what is justice? Who gets to decide and why? Well, what Christians want to say is ultimately justice is what God says it is. So the Bible provides God's vision for justice. God is the who, who gets to decide and define what justice ultimately is. And why does he get to decide that? Because he is ultimately the one that has made the world and he has made human beings. And he knows better than anyone what is necessary for human flourishing. Now, I don't think that's particularly hard to grasp, the idea that God defines justice. It's his vision and he gets to decide because he's God. But here's the problem. When people arrive at our text this morning or texts like this in the Old Testament, they, they don't like the sense of justice that they give. And as we've talked about already in the last couple of weeks, I think there's reasons for that. Again, many times we look at the things that were culturally conditioned, they were time-bound, they were relative, uh, namely the case laws, as I've talked about, and the particular punishments assigned to them. And what we did in order to make sure that we're always preserving God's word is God's word, we're not taking away, we're not adding to, we're, we're not removing anything that God intends for us to do today, but we're also being thoughtful and careful and rightly dividing the word of truth so that we don't wrongly grab onto things God intended only for ancient Israel in the past and try to bring it forward into the 21st century. And I know this is a, a difficult project, but I'm hoping to simplify that for all of us today. So one of the key things that I did in the last couple of weeks is I talked about there's two different kinds of laws in particular. There's apodictic law, which is just principles, and that's what the Ten Commandments are. And when I talk about sort of these universal principles, I'm not talking about apodictic law, broadly speaking, that anywhere you might find uh, in the Torah, but I'm talking specifically about the apodictic law of the Ten Commandments, okay? So that's specifically what I'm pointing to. Those were very clearly the foundational principles for Israel. And I'd say that Jesus Christ sums up those principles of the Ten Commandments in himself, 
He's fulfilled that on our behalf and on behalf of Israel. And by believing in Jesus, it is now his law and his principles in the New Testament that apply. But here's an interesting point to make. If we recognize that ultimately for us, it's not the Old Covenant, it's not the Mosaic Law that that applies directly to us, and yet it does two things. It provides the background so that we can understand the Old Test, uh, New Testament and appreciate it. And also what you see in the New Testament is that all of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath, are reaffirmed by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. So they actually reaffirm that the Ten Commandments are these universal principles. And even on the one that many people will say doesn't apply the Sabbath, in a sense you could look at Hebrews and say it's not so much that the Sabbath doesn't apply, but it is applied through Christ in a new way, that Christ has entered in to this rest on behalf of God's people, and that through faith in him, we all enter into this permanent state of rest in Christ, because we are not saved by our works, but by the finished work of Christ. And so we're able to rest from our works. And that's why, of course, Paul and others will say, it it doesn't particularly matter what day you worship on. You don't have to say, oh, it's Saturday. As long as you're entering into worship and practically you're you're designating a time and a place uh, to, to worship the Lord, to hear the teaching of God's word, to sing praises, to offer offerings, as long as we're still doing that, we're entering into that rest. So it's kind of an interesting way of seeing how the Ten Commandments still, in a sense, apply, but I'd say they apply in and through Jesus Christ. But that being said, what about the case laws then? What about these case laws we're looking at uh, where it it seems very time-bound? We talked about slavery last week. Slavery um, is outlawed, thankfully. That's a good thing. so, so are the case laws endorsing these ancient situations? No, we've talked about no. Um, it, the, many of these case laws come at life realistically and pragmatically. In other words, they, they take the 10 principles, the 10 commandments, and they say, look, the world is not the way it should be. We recognize that. And what we want to do is, in, is come in, limit evil, try to push things better in a right direction, and point to God. That's what they want to do. Outward laws don't make people right in their hearts. I think we all know that, and if we don't, we really need to ponder that. Outward laws never make people right. You can slap as many laws as you possibly want on people, and still in their hearts, it won't make them right. It might limit outward temporal evil, could just provoke people to more anger. You you never really know. But ultimately, these things were, were time-bound. They, they acknowledge things aren't the way it should be, but they're trying to limit it, make things a little better, and point ultimately to God. Now, the same thing is true with many of the penalties. So many of the penalties, even insofar as the principles that we're going to see this morning, still apply to our New Testament Christian vision of what is justice. And yet we're also going to see sometimes the penalties uh, don't necessarily apply, that they can, and in some cases, should be different than what you find there. But I think if what we do is we take these case laws, like the one before us this morning, we unpack it in its context. Remember that. One of the things people tend to do is come to the Bible, and they have all their modern assumptions, and they force that onto the text of the Bible as though that's the original setting. And so one of the first things we talked about doing is make sure, especially 
When you come to the Old Testament laws, you look at the surrounding context, see what was going on, figure out in what ways Israel was unique or set apart or in what ways they were the same, and then we can bring forward the principles and begin to apply them today. So particularly today, we, we want to ask this question, what, what is justice? What does a just culture look like? Again, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 21 aren't going to unpack uh, um, the entire broad vision of what justice is, but it's going to contribute to it. And that's what I want to hope to do as we go through some of these various laws is take these principles, these elements of this Old Testament vision for justice, extract the principles through the original context, and then talk about how that might apply in our world today. So I broke this uh, down into the three components. The first one begins, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Now, I want you to notice that this goes back to the Ten Commandments. So if you go back to the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. And if you'll remember, I did a study a while back uh, saying that I don't think that's the best translation of that word. The Hebrew word is ratzach, and it means to murder. And so that's very clear because some people have the wrong idea. Thou shalt not kill means you can't be in the military, you can't be in law enforcement and use your firearm, and you can't defend yourself if somebody breaks into your house uh, or, or whatnot. And I pointed out that's not true, that's not what it means, or, or people are against capital punishment on the basis of the sixth man. And very, very clearly, right after chapter 20, we have chapter 21, where we just heard the death penalty uh, instituted, if not permitted, even mandated here in chapter 21, verses 12 through 14. So again, remember, the sixth commandment is not so much thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt not murder. So we're bringing that universal principle forward, which still applies to New Testament Christians today, thou shalt not murder. And what is happening is Moses, through the Spirit, is applying this principle to their context. And it says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Now, what we have here is a case in which a man commits murder, okay? Now, this is a development of the Sixth Commandment. Now, in the Sixth Commandment, all you have is the principle. You don't have a situation. You don't have a case. You don't have a penalty. Uh, you, you don't answer the, the but, if, and, when questions that real life actually brings up whenever you, you state and try to apply a principle. So remember, uh, God's people... We're going to learn these principles, but God's people will always have to pray. We'll, we'll have to seek wisdom and counsel amongst ourselves to sometimes figure out how do we apply these timeless principles to some of these new situations that are taking place. In many cases, that technology, for example, is uh, forcing us to have to answer. So he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So we're bringing forth the sixth commandment and then a, a penalty is being attached. Now notice that a penalty, a specific penalty is being attached and it is capital punishment. It is the death penalty. So as I said, the sixth commandment cannot mean thou shalt not kill in the broadest sense possible. It means thou shalt not murder. God himself, speaking through Moses, is attaching the death penalty, that the death penalty is legitimate, particularly here in the case of murder. Now, many people, when they go through the law codes, they see the death penalty for a number of things that 
they they wouldn't feel comfortable with. And we have to acknowledge that right now the death penalty is becoming less and less popular, that more and more people are taking stands against it. Western Europe, from what I'm aware of, uh, most of those countries have completely uh, ruled the death penalty out as being barbaric and archaic and no civilized society. Uh, should possibly do that. Uh, even in the United States, it's still around in some states, but more and more places are seeking not to utilize it anymore. So we have to realize that's kind of where we are. And of course, even though people feel that way, it's even narrower than that, because the only case in which people would even apply it would be for uh, extreme cases of murder. And so what God is doing here is saying any case of murder may be put to death. Now, to give the original context, what we need to realize is when people are reading the Old Testament and they see the death penalty applied to, you know, say, for example, honoring your father and mother and he who doesn't shall be put to death, um, we go, oh my gosh, they're, they're using the death penalty to for, for more things. Now, I'm not here to say you're not reading what you're reading. It, it certainly says those things. But if you study the Old Testament in its context and you look at, say, the Code of Hammurabi, the thing that stands out to you actually, listen to this, the thing about the Old Testament is it actually limits the number of cases in which the death penalty may be used. So according to the Code of Hammurabi, you can actually use the death penalty for more things. So rather than us coming at the Bible from a modern perspective and saying, wow, they, they certainly are liberal with their use of the death penalty, actually, if you come at the, the Torah from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, you go, wow, they've actually really limited their use of capital punishment. So think about it this way. In its context, God was, yes, validating the use of capital punishment, but as far as what was going on around Israel's neighbors, God was actually limiting, think about this, limiting the cases in which capital punishment should actually be used. Now, the, the there's another principle involved here. So we have the principle of thou shalt not murder given in the sixth commandment. But earlier, prior to Moses in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, we have this mandate against the taking of human life through murder and the death penalty being instilled. And it was God speaking after the flood. And he said, whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for man was made in the image of God. So again, there can be non-Christians out there who believe in the death penalty in the cases of murder, but that doesn't mean they believe it for the same reasons that we Christians do. As Christians, we have a theological reason why. And it is because human beings have been made in the image of God. And what God is doing is placing an incredible value on human life. In other words, if somebody murders another human being, there is no price they can pay that is adequate with the exception of their own life. That's the idea. It's not the idea we want to create a culture of violence and revenge and all that, which is what some critics of capital punishment say today. Rather, it's the esteeming of human life. It is the concern that if somebody murders somebody and you say, oh, well, you know what? You just have to pay a fine of $10,000 or, hey, we're going to you know, put you away in, in a prison cell for, for a long period of time and, and you'll stay there and live a long life and yeah, it'll not be very comfortable and you know we'll, we'll feed you three meals a day and you can go to the rec yard and all, all that kind of stuff it's the idea that 
that is not valuing human life the way that God says it is worth. So that's what's happening here. There is a theological reason as to why God is doing that. So we're seeing capital punishment for the case of murder because God, it is an absolute prohibition to murder. There's never a reason to murder. And God values human beings so much that if somebody takes somebody's life illicitly, the only thing that can recompense that is their own life. And so the goal ultimately is to protect life. The idea is if somebody's contemplating murder, but they know they're going to give up their own life, then maybe they will hesitate to do that. And I think that's the case, although many people like to argue it. But in principle, the idea holds. It's about the value of human life. And anything else than giving one's life is, is really sacrilege against human beings. Now, notice the second part. So once again, the Ten Commandments did not assign a punishment. So God's people in the Old Testament needed to come up with a punishment. That's provided here. But then there's always the, yeah, but what if questions of real life. Just as New Testament Christians have principles and doctrines, but we always have to say, okay, but what happens if somebody doesn't believe this or doesn't follow it? Um, and what what if what if the situation's not that easy. What if, what if it's this, but it's also this? What if it's partly that, but partly something else? And that's what we see here in the second part. It says, however, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. So what's happening here is we're talking about the case of manslaughter. What if a man accidentally kills another man? It wasn't premeditated what about him? It's kind of killing, it's kind of murder, but it's not quite the same thing if somebody is doing it maliciously. What about him? It's what we would call manslaughter today. Well, what we see is God is making a distinction between the action and the intent. Notice that. There is a distinction being made between the action and the intent. Now, once again, modern people go, well, duh, of course you should make a distinction between action and intent. Well, friends, this is a novel idea. This is a novel development in the context. Once again, in the ancient Near East, Code of Hammurabi, there is no distinction between action and intent. If somebody gets killed, it doesn't matter whether you did it on purpose or accident, you will be murdered. You will be, or excuse me, you will be executed summarily. So there was no distinction being made. So this is a development. This is an innovation. The idea of making a distinction between an action and an intent. The Bible, God's word, is bringing this into the idea of the legal code. So if he did not lie in wait, it was not premeditated, then notice the phrase, but God delivered him into his hand. It's the idea that nothing in the world, not even accidents, are outside of God's sovereignty. Now again, I don't think any verse of the Bible fully explains how God can be sovereign and yet 
cars can crash, planes can crash, uh, things happen. You know, we really wrestle with those things, and and I understand that, and they are many times they're they're mysteries. We don't know why God allowed this accident to happen, but the Bible would still want to affirm. Look, there's not even a sparrow. Jesus says falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing, and so it's this picture of God's sovereignty that this didn't happen outside God's sovereignty, even though we don't fully get how that works. So, however, he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand. Notice, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Now, it doesn't say what place that is. And you can tell that the laws of Israel, and this is another thing, this is another way we can know that these casuistic laws, these case laws, are not uh, eternal principles that modern Christians apply today. Even in the Torah, you're going to see that things are added and and changed to the way these are applied. Ten Commandments never change. They stay the same, but the applications change. Uh, One of the things that changes is where people are going to flee to. So right here, this indicates and affirms that this was given in an early stage in Israel's history. I would say namely the one that the Bible story provides. This is before they get into the promised land. They're at Sinai. God's giving this. And he says, I'm I'm going to provide a place where you can go. But he doesn't say where. Later in Numbers and Deuteronomy, God says where? When you're going into Canaan, I'm going to appoint six cities of refuge, uh, three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other. And these are going to be cities that you're going to be able to flee to. So notice what's happening here. God is making a distinction between the action and the intent. And he's not saying that manslaughter is nothing. Notice that. There's still kind of a punitive measure attached, but the life of the one, the manslayer, is being protected. So what God's going to do is he's going to provide a place where the manslayer can go and, and hide out. He can be safe. And, uh, uh, but at the same time, there's a punishment because he can't leave. More instructions, like I said, will be given about this later in the Torah. Um, the manslayer has to stay in what is called a city of refuge, and he has to stay there until the high priest of that town dies, and then he's free to go. Now, you may not know this about the ancient Near Eastern culture, but it was an unwritten code that if anyone killed a member of your family, it would be your duty or the duty of your your next of kin to go and kill that man, to get vengeance on behalf of the family or the clan. In Hebrew, this was known as the Goel Hadam, the Goel Hadam, the avenger of blood or the redeemer of blood. And this was a universally practiced concept in the ancient Near East. It was considered just and right and even a necessity for, for honor, for the good of the family. If someone killed your family member, didn't didn't matter if he was chopping wood and the axe head flew off and hit your uncle in the in the head and killed him you it was on you to go kill that man so we we had this concept called the avenger of blood and you'll see that um, in the Torah this was not mandated by God in the Bible but this was just this is the way it was the world always has many practices that are outside the Bible doesn't always mean they're anti-biblical but they're extra biblical in the Bible we want to apply to whatever those cultural practices are. So the Goel Hadam, the avenger of blood, the redeemer of blood, would chase the manslayer and try to kill him. But if the manslayer went to one of these places that God is saying he will 
provide here in our text this morning, then he is going to be safe. But once again, there's still an incentive to be very, very careful because even though God is going to protect the life of the manslayer, you'll notice that's still not a great life. You've got to flee from uh, wherever you live and from your family and the life that you have there, and you're going to have to go to this uh, city of refuge, and you're going to have to stay there until the time comes that you're able to to leave. So it's an interesting way of protecting, distinguishing manslaughter from murder, which is very important. It's found its way uh, into, of course, our laws of this day. It was an innovation at the time. And yet at the same time, there was a a built-in deterrent for anyone to not be careless about accidentally endangering somebody's life. Because again, though you may save your life, it's still um, not, not a great deal. And lastly, number three, you're going to see now it comes back and it it reaffirms um, the initial situation. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, what does he mean, take him from his altar? Now, probably what this means is, as I just said a moment ago, eventually the place that a manslayer would go would be a city of refuge. But right now there is no city of refuge. So it was a common ancient practice that a temple anywhere, right? Not just Israel, any temple in the ancient Near East was a sacred place. And it was common practice that if a person committed a a crime, a a murder or anything else, they could run into the temple to the altar, grab a hold of the horns of the altar, and it would be like political asylum. Uh, In in modern terms, we know that Julia Assange is hiding, I think it's in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, England, and and he's able to go there into this building, and, and even though you've got, you know, uh, you've got American law, you've got international law, but he's in this sacred temple, so to speak, and he's grabbing on the horns of the altar and he's not letting go. And as long as Julian Assange is is in that temple holding on to the altar, he's protected, right? But if he leaves, it's a whole nother deal. That's actually what was happening in the ancient world. The temples or altars were, were effectively like a modern embassy. So people would run into these temples, and even if somebody murdered, they were guilty of pre, think about this, they were guilty of premeditated murder, they could go into a temple, they could grab hold, and and as long as they're there, they are safe. Notice how God is saying, religion cannot be used as an excuse to take away life. Notice that. In God's economy, religion and ceremony cannot be used to take away human life and to do injustice. Notice that. So if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. In other words, even though a a cold-blooded murderer could go to a pagan temple and escape justice through religion, Notice that it is it is the Hebrew and Christian religion where even though we want to say the temple is a sacred place, the church is a sacred place, and yet Christianity and, and the Christian religion and, and the church cannot be used to mask injustice or violence. There can be no excuse whatsoever. We can imagine that, that there's, there's been, unfortunately, many people have used religion to escape injustice, or they've said, well, this bad thing happened, uh, but, but it's, it's for religious reasons we're going to cover up this crime. Actually, the Bible says the opposite. 
religion and ceremony, and, and though there, there is that sacred element to, to the assembly and, and to the gathering of God's people and, and all that kind of a thing, and yet that can never be used and must not be used to mask injustice, to take away life, to ruin life, to do wickedly. And so we're seeing once again a novel innovation. Though the pagan temples would protect even a cold-blooded murderer, God says, nope, you can come right into my altar. Because again, the right worship of God, listen to this, friends, the right worship of God is also related to the right treatment of our fellow man. Jesus said he summed up all of the law and the prophets in just two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that's actually what's happening here. The right worship of God. Not only is it permissible for if, if a murderer is grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar in Israel for guards to come in and take him away, it is a part of right worship. That the temple would actually be defiled if you used religion to mask injustice and the taking of human life. Now, let's kind of take what we see here and reflect on that question, what is justice? Well, I think the one thing we can take away from this morning's text is that from a biblical standpoint, from a Christian worldview, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, what should we say about justice? And we would say that biblical justice creates a culture of life. Biblical justice creates a culture of life. We saw that in the very first part. The reason there's a prohibition against murder, because human life is worth more than anything else in this world. Human life, worth more than, than money, it's worth more than possessions, it's worth more than animals. Human beings are worth more than anything else. Else. So God highly prizes human beings. We saw that if somebody murders another human being, the only payment that does justice to the crime is that one forfeits their life. So again, it's this idea of a culture of life. It is valuing the life of the person who's been killed. It is valuing life so that people are, there's a deterrent built in so that people will not take human life. Then we see even a protection of life of the manslayer. God's law is able to deal with the nuances and details of life as it is applied. God recognizes that in this world, even when people don't intend to do evil, evils can still happen. Bad things can still happen. We see that even the life of the manslayer, look at that, the life of the manslayer has value. And so God is protecting the manslayer from what was common back then, what we might call today frontier justice that we saw even in the days of the Old West where people would just take the law into their own hands. God is saying, no, we're, we're going to break this cycle of these blood feuds between clans, which would many times end in the extermination of an entire clan as they went through these cycles of violence and revenge. God is saying, no, we don't want a culture of revenge and violence. We want a culture of life. And then once again, notice this, that if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, religion cannot be used in order to take away life and to mask injustice because biblical religion, true religion, stands for life, loving God and loving others. 
So how might a culture of life apply today? Now, on the face of it, this text, for example, doesn't talk about abortion, does it? But this is an example of what I've been proposing to all of you that we do as Christians with the Old Testament law. We look at it, we read it carefully, we study it in its biblical context first, make sure we understand it in light of what the rest of the Bible says about it. Then we also look at what was going on at the time, what was Israel's neighbors, in what ways was it unique, what ways was it the same, and then we finally figure out what was going on, and then we extract the principles from that. And like I said, what we get is a culture of life. God is creating a culture of life here in the middle of the ancient Near East, and he wants to do so today. But notice that if we do that, if we take the principle, it might be applied in new ways. And one of the most blatant and obvious ways that I believe, again, if, if we're creating a culture of life, then obviously we've got to find a way to limit and restrict abortion. Again, ultimately, I, I think we would all like to see it disappear. But I also, like the Old Testament, I also acknowledge, look, people are still your passing laws will not change people's hearts. And ultimately, much of the reason for abortion, it comes down to people's view of sex. And their view of sex is shaped by their religion or the lack thereof. So friends, ultimately, if we want to get rid of abortion, we've got to preach Christ. Because once people preach, preach Christ, they receive the gospel message. They become a new person. Sex looks completely different when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord. And out of that comes a a different sexual ethic in which abortion is either minimized or completely eliminated. So friends, we still have to aim at getting the gospel out. But nevertheless, we might want to do what the Old Testament often does, which is acknowledge, look, we understand people are still going to do bad things. They're still going to probably get abortions, whether it's here or there in this state or that state, or they have to do this or that. But for Christians, do we want to limit it? Do we want to work to try to say, hey, no, we don't stand for that. In principle, we say no. We just say it's wrong. We're not saying, oh, sometimes it's right. No, we're saying it's wrong. It's, it's always wrong. The taking of innocent human life, it's called murder, is always wrong. We believe that in principle. But again, just like the Sixth Commandment, is now applied to complex, nuanced situations in which our goal is to simply limit the evil, try to promote the good, and then get the good news of Jesus Christ out, because that alone is the ultimate solution. In the end, it's only really going to disappear if people no longer want to do it. Think about that. In the end, abortion will only be gone the day nobody wants to do it anymore. As long as there's a desire there, there's always going to be somebody who's going to enable that desire to be fulfilled. So we want to create a culture of life. And again, that's, and as many people have said recently, and I agree, I don't want to take away from uh, the pro-life movement and cause, because I, I think that's supreme. Of, of all the um, innocent voices speaking up, a voice for the voiceless, those who have the least amount of power in our society, it has to be the life of the unborn. Uh, more than any other people group out there, innocent unborn life are the ones we should be advocating for. And yet I can also agree with others who say, yes, but we want to care about all life. We want to care about from the cradle to the grave. We want to care about the elderly. We want to be mindful of euthanasia policies as cost of medical care continues to rise and, and you know, ER rooms being filled with people. Major ethical questions are being asked. Hey, should we care about this person? Um, gosh, I don't know if there's much we can do. And they're, they're taking our time and our resources. Again, 
again, Christians are going to need to take our culture of life, which is what Jesus Christ gives us, because Jesus Christ did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so we are wanting to bring a culture of life wherever we can, from the cradle to the grave, but especially, I would say, for those who are the unborn, being a voice for the voiceless. And so I believe that if we are understanding ultimately what values, what principles God is speaking through this text in Exodus, we won't see it merely as a text uh, affirming capital punishment, but more so a text that reaffirms something much deeper and greater, which is a culture of life. And that is a positive value. Not everyone is going to agree on the death penalty, but at the same time, can we present a positive view, a view of life in which human life is valued far more now than it is in our culture? I believe that is what Jesus came to do in and through his gospel. It is what we are meant to do. We want to create cultures of life here in this world, ultimately pointing to the one whom alone gives eternal life as a preview of his kingdom, which is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken to mankind through first through the prophets, then the apostles, and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we just pray that you would create in us a desire to preach the kingdom of Christ, which is a kingdom of life. Lord, we thank you that in and through Jesus, we presently have eternal life. Not only will we have life after death, but we have abundant life now in Jesus. And we just pray that as a sign and preview of your kingdom, you would enable God's people to take this value of human life, this call, this mandate to create a culture of life, and that you would use us, Father, that you would grant wisdom to your people on how each of us individually and collectively can be a voice of life in our culture of death. We just pray that you would use us to make a difference in our world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that would like to continue this morning's worship with tithes and offerings, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. Uh, first of all, you can go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a giving tab up there at the top, and you can just click there, and you're able to give using your credit or debit card. For those of you that would prefer to mail in a, a check or money order, a cashier's check, you can do so to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry, 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Again, a couple of quick announcements. So we have a San Clemente community group meeting this Tuesday night. And so if you're interested in attending that, we'll be gathering together in a home in San Clemente and really chewing over today's message, discussing it, and really thinking through application. We don't want sermons to go in one ear and out the other. We don't want to be hearers of the word only. We want to be doers. And so that's the focus of the community groups is wrestling over with what we've heard and thinking together in community how we can do the word that we've heard. So that's going to be happening uh, at the home of Dave Cross in San Clemente. If you'd like information about that, 
please email us at information at imagechurchoc.com, information at imagechurchoc.com, and just let us know you're interested in the San Clemente community group. Uh, we had a San, uh, San Juan community group meeting last week at Jim and Linda Harris's house. We'll have a couple more uh, launching very soon as well, so we'll get you that information. Of course, we're going to have our Wednesday night Bible study, and we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, which is an incredibly encouraging book, and so I invite all of you to attend that. That's going to be at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, again, we want you to mark your calendars if you're in the South Orange County area for our next outdoor in-person service, which is going to be February 28th. So mark your calendars February 28th, most likely 10.30 a.m. Uh, we're usually doing that for uh, weather purposes. Maybe we'll move it back to 10. But right now you can mark it 10.30 February 28th. So I hope you all uh, will join us for that if you're able. Um, also, if you do have any Bible questions or prayer requests, feel free to email those to that same email address, information at imagechurchoc.com. Let me close with this word of blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you all so much for joining. If this service and worship and message was a blessing to you, I encourage you to like our post, share it. Let's get the word of God out to as many people as we can. And we look forward to joining with you again next Sunday.